This is hell. With my apologies to everybody, my cold is now in its third week, so please be patient with whatever noises my head happens to make this morning. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. When the rust belt started rusting from Chicago to Pittsburgh and beyond, when manufacturing went into decline and deindustrialization was settling in, those of us in the rust belt were frightened by the loss of good pay and benefits won by unions through the power of collective bargaining. And it wasn't only in the manufacturing sector, but as we discussed with Terrence Ray last week when we talked about his article at The Baffler, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids, the extractive and mining industries were also affected in a similar way. During that conversation, Terrence mentioned the impact this would also have on health care and communities devastated by the loss of good jobs. Those manufacturing and mining jobs not only provided financial security for families through employing the male head of the house, who was usually white, but they also caused lingering health problems, including lung diseases like mesothelioma. You ever wonder why there are so many ads on TV for mesothelioma, lawyers? It's because a lot of aging Rust Belt retirees and pensioners in their twilight years are now suffering. But with manufacturing decline, we were promised that a new economy, customer service or information-based or biotech or programming sector would emerge and fill in for the loss of unionized manufacturing work. The sector most poised to fill that gap was the service sector and the caring economy that included everything from healthcare to education and everything in between. But unlike manufacturing, these were sectors far more outside of labor organizing and unionization. The new jobs didn't have the protections offered to industrial unions by law. It turns out that the power of collective bargaining that won such massive gains for unionized labor led to a tiered system of benefits for the kinds of workers who deserve them, especially in manufacturing and mining, and those who do not, and that's everybody else, you know, like caregivers. In a few minutes, we will reconsider the history of the Rust Belt and why it became so corroded when we will be discussing a book that Terrence mentioned last week, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, with its author and today's guest, historian Gabriel Wynant. Gabriel is assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago. His writing about work, inequality, and capitalism in modern America has appeared in The Nation, The New Republic, Dissent, and N Plus One. Before coming to the University of Chicago, Gabriel was a visiting scholar at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Jess, how are you? Because it's, again, been a while since I've seen you. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. It's really good to be here. Are you done with the school year and everything? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wrapping up my thesis, so I'm still writing, but I'm not in class right now. And are you going to get any extra credit for having your prof here on the show? <laughs> I don't think so. Damn I was, it. <laughs> I was hoping it would get some, one of us something. My weekend sucked again. It started with me self-administering a COVID test and shoving that spiked plastic swab that's more like a pipe cleaner down your throat, not once but twice. Not a good way to start your weekend. And wondering all weekend if you have COVID is not a great way to spend your weekend either. Despite being completely vaccinated, I stayed indoors all weekend as if it were the height of the pandemic. 
idling my time as I did when we were all in lockdown, boring myself to death because I've lost options as to what to do in my home, and I still don't know the outcome of the damned test. More importantly than any of that, Jess, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Oh, Jesus. Nice question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for support at the support part of our website. You can find ways in which you can purchase our coffee mugs, our trucker's caps, our winter hats, our t-shirts, our tote bags, the flash drive of the 21st century, a recap of what we learned in the first 20 years here on This Is Hell. All of that is available right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. And a very, very special thanks to Neil, who displayed his very generous support for the show this weekend. Thanks, Neil. It is truly, truly appreciated. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do each and every week following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Gabriel Winant. Again, the question from hell is who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is oily fish. Following England's European Cup semifinal win over Denmark last week, an article headlined Own Goal, the best hangover cures to help you recover after that England win, was posted at the website of the British tabloid The Sun. The story cites nutritionist Pauline Cox saying that eating oily fish could be the key to helping out your hangover. They also report that the, that the nutritionist is affiliated with the company that sells fish oil. <laughs> That's real convenient. And by the way, great journalism, son. Great, great, great job at The Sun. Cox tells The Sun, quote, that anxious, jittery feeling you get the morning after turns out low. Um, um, <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, I'm going to try it. Docosahexanoic acid. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You're not bad. Improving not my bad. vocabulary yeah. every week. Yeah. Um, or DHA levels in the brain could be the culprit. Research has shown the, the protective effects of a particular omega-3 found in, found in high levels in the brain called DHA. DHA has been shown to have neuroprotective effects against the damage of alcohol on the brain. Fish oils have the potential to protect the brain cells from the damaging effects of inflammation brought about from drinking alcohol, although more research is needed to confirm these effects. That makes this week's hangover cure oily fish. According to a nutritionist who has been hired by a company that sells fish oil, ah, the sun never disappoints in its journalistic credibility. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Man, I mean, we just, this is not working it out. We're not raking it in in this business model. This is hell, and you can help with the horrible business of your friends here at This Is Hell by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we played one of my favorite interviews from the aughts, and i got to say one of my favorite interviews ever, a conversation with anthropologist Carolyn Nordstrom 
author of Global Outlaws, Crime, Money, and Power in the Contemporary World. That conversation was from 2007. In that talk, Carolyn explains how she studied the pathways of global crime by acting as if she was herself an illegal good and traveled without being detected by any border guards or customs services around the world. She made herself into the object of illicit trade. It's a fascinating talk on what happens when you are the crime and exactly how you would think an anthropologist would study crime. Meanwhile, during my monologue, I explained how easy, convenient, and downright cool it is to be complicit in the destruction of our planet. For instance, when I take a long hot shower prior to doing the show, I'm wasting resources and contributing to groundwater depletion and climate change, which really, really ruined my shower this morning. We got an email from Patreon subscriber Rob, who wrote of last week's monologue, man, I was way too high for this week's Patreon monologue. Good for you, Rob, because I was way too sober to read it. But you can only hear an enlightening discussion about the globalization of crime and how we don't even have to think about causing global warming. We just do it every day by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is how we've done over 150 of these. So it's like an entire complete year of additional content from this is hell. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash this is hell and find a huge archive of interviews that are not available anywhere else online but at our Patreon site. We are using that Patreon money to pay people in order to rebuild our site so all of these can be free to everyone, but who the hell knows when that's going to happen. Coming up, what the hell happened to the Rust Belt and why? We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? And we will be telling you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Unions fought hard to win the power of collective bargaining. That hard-won victory guaranteed secure jobs with good pay and benefits that helped entire families for generations. But when those industrial jobs in manufacturing, as well as mining, were being sent overseas or just disappearing, a new economy was ready to replace the old with supposedly cleaner, greener, better jobs. Unfortunately, without labor organizing to protect the new work, the Rust Belt rusted and a society went into what seems like irreversible decline. Here to give us a better understanding of what happened, historian Gabriel Winant is author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Welcome to This Is Hell, Gabriel. Thanks for having me. Nice to join you. You write that in 2013, Pennsylvania's largest private employer, that would be the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, claimed before federal investigators that it has no employees. And the massive healthcare system today employs more than 85,000 people, legal claims notwithstanding. Where did all the workers go, you ask? The hospital chain's claim of having no employees made in the context of disputes over its employment practices and tax status rested upon a legal distinction between the parent company and its subsidiary entities. Because of its organizational structure, UPMC argued it has not it was not obligated to act in ways expected of an employer. This contention put UPMC in the growing camp of employers in all industries seeking to avoid responsibility for employment's costs 
through the use of subcontracting or misclassification of workers as independent contractors, a phenomenon known as the fissuring of the workplace. You call this a misclassification, an incorrect classification, wrongly assigning someone as a subcontractor. How are these workers who UPMC, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, argues are subcontractors, not actually subcontractors? Sure. Well, there's a kind of complicated answer to this. Uh, I'll try to keep it simple. So um, UPMC, this big hospital chain, now employs almost 100,000. It's grown since I wrote the book. Um, it was arguing that the hospitals that it owns, it's, you know, it's a parent company, the hospitals that it owns were the actual employers of the workers and were kind of autonomous entities. And so the union should take up its problems with each hospital separately. So the, the parent company doesn't actually employ anyone. And as I, as I say in the passage you just quoted, yeah, we've all now kind of gotten familiar with this kind of game, right? Everyone has run into this somewhere in the course of their life, whether it's writing an Uber. You know, I wrote this book initially as a dissertation, as a graduate student. As a graduate student, I spent plenty of time being told I was not really an employee, even though I was doing teaching assistant and research assistant work. It's all over the economy, this kind of trick. Um, and that's because the way that economic security was constructed through, you know, the way the welfare state was constructed in the 20th century, put employment at the center. You got access, going back to the 1930s and 1940s, when, when this country built our welfare state, you got access to the kind of prime tier of economic security and welfare state protection through your job, typically in the private sector, which is kind of funny for a welfare state, which we think of as a public sector thing. So that over time, uh, and we'll talk about what happened in between, created this incentive eventually for employers to start to say that the people who work for them don't really work for them. So that they don't have to participate in doling out the, uh, the benefits of economic security. But with healthcare workers, along with a lot of other categories, they were never, it's not like there was a kind of period 50 years ago or something where you know they were kind of recognized as employees in a clear way. And then they kind of lost that over time. Rather, all along, in one way or another, healthcare workers have been, like lots of now marginal workers, have been excluded from the protections of the welfare state. They weren't covered by labor law when it was first passed uh, and amended in the 30s and 40s. They weren't covered by things like minimum wage. All of that kind of got tacked on later as afterthoughts, by which time it was sort of too late for them. So one thing that I'm trying to say in the book is that we ought to think of healthcare workers not just as examples of this kind of familiar like uber gig economy type type phenomenon there's something more than that going on here rather the whole healthcare industry now that it's the largest industry in the country in terms of employment it's the largest in any given city by a lot typically uh, the whole healthcare industry has this really weird character where it's kind of pushed outside of the kind of what we think of as the mainstream economy at the same time as it's become the largest sector of employment overall. 
Yeah, and that's really a fascinating point of your book, that the people who are the largest growing sector within employment are also the people who are the least uh, protected. You write the accumulation of capital is more and more decoupled from employment, not just by formal corporate structures, but also by the mix of commodities that human labor is required to uh, practice. Or produce what has changed is not just the corporate organization of labor markets you write, but also beneath it, the social deliv- division of labor. How is the social division of labor different when capital is decoupled from labor? Yeah, so this is like a deep, deep problem, major kind of tectonic transformation in our society. I think um, the social division of labor is a kind of concept or term for just, you know, what do we need to get done and how do we divvy it up, right? Um, And the proportion of our overall labor capacity and, you know, our overall workforce that we commit to manufacturing has gone way down. This Everybody knows this now, right? This is what we call deindustrialization. Um, In Pittsburgh, which the book is about and which was a very industrial city, obviously, in 1950, at its peak, about half the workforce was in industrial production or blue collar work of some kind, manufacturing, mining, construction, trucking, railroad, warehouse, et cetera. Um, about 50% of the overall workforce. Today, that's down to under 10. Uh, and healthcare and the category of the census calls healthcare and social assistance has grown in a place like Pittsburgh to be about 20%. If you add in education, it's up to about 30 uh, some other human services will certainly get you over 50. Uh, healthcare, as I said earlier, is the largest sector. So at a basic level, you know, just what people are doing with their day has changed really dramatically. Um, but, you know, something that I think is, is important to pay attention to within that is that we've seen this overall shift from industries that were generally kind of uh, capable of increasing their productivity somewhat in a kind of continuous way, what we call substituting capital or technology for labor, and a shift from those kinds of industries, you know, things like making machines, making, uh, making, you know, durable kind of inputs to production of different kinds, making consumer goods, uh, a shift from those into human services, where you can't substitute machinery for human beings in the process in the same way. So, you know, the the kind of historic argument for why capitalism is a good system is that it incentivizes people to get a little more efficient every year, all the time, right? Uh, If you figure out the better, you know, a slightly better way of making a pin, this is an Adam Smith, figure out a slightly better way of making a pin by divvying up the labor a little bit more finely and, you know, uh, smartly, you're going to be able to sell pins cheaper. And that means you're going to be able to outcompete the other guy who sells pins. And so pins will get cheaper every year. That's good for pin buyers. And, you'll, and the pin makers will make more money. Everybody wins. That's the historical argument for capitalism. Now, if you think about the human services, uh, like take healthcare as an example, healthcare does not get cheaper every year, right? Something's gone wrong in that process. Healthcare gets more expensive every year. And we don't really seem to be able to, you know, make more healthcare per hour of, of nurses and doctors time, right? It doesn't get more efficient in that way. It's a different kind of operation. So uh, one thing the book is trying to show is this long-term shift away from these kind of classical productivity increasing lines of manufacturing and into 
these sort of stagnant in terms of productivity human services, which are eating up more and more of our human labor capacity. And then to think about what is the significance of that. And I'm arguing that that is actually the more important phenomenon that underlies employers trying to say, we're not really responsible for all these extra costs and obligations of employment. Because if productivity is not increasing steadily, then there is not a kind of surplus you know, efficiency gains out of which an employer can kind of share some of the profit with workers and have everybody win. Rather, there's a zero-sum conflict between employers and workers and potentially consumers. Um, and that incentivizes employers to really try to squeeze and nickel and dime employees in every possible way that they can. That in turn leads them to all of these broke, complex ways of saying, no, that's not our problem. You know, we don't want, we're not going to pay into the workers' comp fund of the state. We're not going to, you know, um, we're not going to, we're going to give you 29 hours a week. And so you don't qualify under Obamacare. Remember when everyone was doing that? Um, well, all the, all the different kind of versions of ways that employers have of wriggling out of the responsibilities of full-time employment. That's because, uh, employees have become cost centers in a different kind of way. So I had maybe 85 questions written down for you. I paired it back to about 50, and now I have two follow-up questions that I didn't even count into that mix. So my first question is, I'm flipping stations this weekend. I stumble across a Pittsburgh Pirates game. They refer to Pittsburgh as the Steel City. What does that say to you about not referring to it as the service city? Why hold on to that idea of being a steel city? What does that reveal to you about the way in which we view industries that support a city? Yeah, well, um, you know, we our, our idea of who the working class is is always out of date in some way uh, because, you know, work is constantly changing under pressure of you know, capitalists trying to make money, they're always reorganizing and transforming work in some way. And, you know, that we, we, however, have kind of received ideas about what work is, who does it, what it means to do it, that come typically from high water points in working class struggle. Because it's when the working class is organized and asserts itself that it makes an imprint on the culture and, you know, creates lasting kind of cultural images and representations of itself, which then persist for some time, even you know after the workers who fought that fight and created that image have been crushed again. <laughs> um, so, what's happened in U.S. history is that you know the labor movement had this high water point basically in the middle of the 20th century, between the 1930s and 1950s, more or less. Uh, this is the period when industrial workers organized themselves into the great industrial unions, the United Steel Workers, the United Auto Workers, the United Mine Workers, and so on, um, fought you know, heroic and bloody and difficult strikes all across what's now the Rust Belt. One recognition for their, their unions transformed the economy of the country in many ways, transformed the lives of millions of people. And for a period in American cultural history, really became kind of the protagonists of the kind of national narrative. You know, if you go back and watch like early sitcoms, I always tell people, you know, if you go back and watch early sitcoms from the beginning of television, like in the 50s, all the protagonists, all the main characters are blue collar, uh, which would never happen now, right? Uh, like think about, you know, Ralph Cramden on The Honeymooners and something like that. He was a milk, milkman, I think. Um, 
And that's sort of generally true, that blue-collar workers were at the center of the national narrative. Uh, in 59, there's a story I tell in the book, kind of famous story. Nixon went to Moscow as part of a kind of Cold War diplomacy thing to, uh, to visit an American model, like a kind of American exposition showing American culture to the Soviets. And he um, he and Khrushchev, who was, who was premier at the time, tour a kind of American model home, you know, a sort of normal middle-class home. And the first thing that Nixon says in what's called the kitchen debate is he says, our steel workers are on strike right now, but any of them could afford this home. They make $3 an hour. Now, that's a really significant thing for the vice president of the United States to say to the Soviet premier in Moscow, because what he's saying is, you think you're, the, you have the ideology and the system that represents the working class, but we in the United States are actually the ones who are delivering for the working class. So it's a weapon in the Cold War um, to ha have blue collar work kind of central and honored in this way. It means a lot of complicated different things, but, you know, meanwhile, as you said, steel workers are on strike. Employers are trying to kind of lower their standard of living and their working conditions. And over a generation, they succeed. You know, the steel industry is ground down into dust, as are all the kind of main manufacturing centers. And there has not been a major wave of working class struggle since. So there has been nothing to replace that kind of central cultural image that is created by the strike waves and movements of the 30s and 40s. There's been nothing to stand in for that in, in that same space. And instead, we have this kind of weird ghost right, of the kind of image of the blue-collar worker who doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, there just are not that many industrial workers left in this country. Uh, as I always like to say during the first Trump election, when coal miners were getting talked about all the time by journalists, there are more journalists than coal miners in this country, like, by a lot. Um, but nonetheless, they, you know, coal miners and steel workers and so on stand in as a kind of cultural totem, uh, because they hearken back to this, you know, now quite long, long lost moment of working class power. And so it's a really kind of complex and ambiguous thing, how we have this kind of lingering ghost uh, that in some ways, you know, gives people an indirect way of, you know, yearning for a moment when regular people did have power and did have a voice and were more economically secure, uh, but also, carries a set of assumptions in it about who a worker is and what work is should be like that are way out of date. Um, and in some ways makes it harder to see the kinds of working class struggle that exists today. Industrialized workers, industrial workers, they their jobs could be automated. And so there was a pressure on them to possibly be losing their jobs through automation. Are caregiver jobs, you know, you point out they cannot be automated. Is that for some reason, is that connected to why they're not allowed to be unionized, why they don't have labor organizing? Does that lack of an ability to be automated make their jobs more precarious? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, technically, most caregiving jobs have a legal right to organize, although often with additional legal burdens. But they'll find typically care care worker, I mean, to stick with the healthcare industry example, they find that it's very difficult to win and very difficult to make gains once they do win compared to what industrial workers found a century ago. Um, and your question does get at this because 
uh, as I was saying a minute ago, the uh, industries where automation is possible in a kind of significant and sustained way are typically industries where, uh, you know, like in most kinds of manufacturing, uh, where it's possible for the employer to kind of become more efficient at producing the good, whatever goods they produce over time and thereby to pay for their concessions to labor, at least partly out of efficiency gains rather than out of profits. Um, so in other words, you know, it's not like in the auto industry or the steel industry or whatever, they love the union and they were happy to deal with them, but they could find a way to live with them because, uh, because of this phenomenon, because they could pay for their concessions partly out of efficiency gains. And moreover, uh, when labor struck, right, there was all of this machinery that it, it could shut down. That was in, you know, dead capital sitting there. That was, you know, that, that was a big problem, right? So there was something labor could kind of affect more with its collective action economically. And there was, and there was also a way that, uh, that, you know, when you got the machines running again, employers could uh, afford to make those concessions. In an industry like healthcare, um, which is much more just kind of person-to-person -person interaction, I mean, there's some amount of equipment and machinery and capital and plants and so on, but, but it's proportionally much less significant. Um, and there's very little, you know, substitution of machinery for humans that has yet succeeded. Um, it's, you know, the, the, those same advantages for, for potential advantages for workers don't really seem to exist. Now, maybe I'll be proven wrong on this in the coming years. Certainly there are a million venture capitalists who have schemes for how you can replace a nurse with an app. You know, the, the, the idea is that definitely out there, but they haven't figured it out yet. And um, instead, you know, what they have, what, what you have is this kind of zero sum conflict between workers and employers where you know there is a kind of relatively fixed amount of income that's in part determined through political you know through policy we can talk more about that and the more workers can claim the less that you know employers have and so they just fight harder and you know moreover there is not a kind of huge amount of machinery and a kind of ongoing flow like an assembly line that is super costly to interrupt that's not how healthcare is organized, right? If a person in this room is not getting, or in this hospital is not getting the, you know, the care that they need, it's not really how strikes work anyway, but whatever. Um, it doesn't affect what happens in the next room or the next hospital. It's not like an assembly line. And so the power of individual or groups of workers to interrupt the overall process of production is not the same. And moreover, there's huge pressure, quite understandably in some ways, to not let like patients die, right? And so when healthcare workers go on strike, they have to file kind of extra notice so that the employer has time to replace them, you know, with scabs, um, which of course kind of undoes the whole point of a strike in some way. Um, so there's all of these extra burdens that come with organizing in, in that industry. So as you point out, this is not only, you know, deindustrialization de is not about just losing jobs, but losing the social world that those jobs and that work and those unions and that labor organizing created. So how much 
of the problem is that work becomes life, that we depend upon employers for a social world that, especially in the more privatized world today that we have, is otherwise not provided. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, this kind of goes back to the beginning of our conversation. Like, we have this really weird system in this country where empl- where your access to the kind of means of survival, well, this is true across capitalism, right? Your a- access to the means of survival uh, depends to a significant degree on your access to employment. And then, you know, our welfare state, our social system, our politics have made that worse by not just, you know, saying that you need to have a job to have money, but also that the way that you get healthcare is through your job, the way that you survive if you lose a job actually also depends on your job rather than on on the government, Uh, that, you, you know, your access to retirement depends on your job. I mean, all kinds of things, right, are routed through your work. Um, as work has become more, you know, precarious as labor markets have become disorganized and as there is this kind of overall transition to work being a cost center like or employees being cost centers like i was talking about before um that's led to this like really paradoxical situation which is that you know you need work to survive you need work to have economic security um but employers are incentivized to, you know, basically like the way that many employers make money is by holding down their labor costs as much as they possibly can. Uh, And, you know, that's like what causes a stock price to go up for lots of companies is when they lay off a bunch of people. This is in the news all the time. Uh, You know, corporation announces it's laying off 44,000 workers, stock price goes up, you know, X number of points. Um, So there's a kind of core contradiction at the heart of our economy that, you know, it, it, the rules are you need work to survive, but the people who employ you need to get rid of you for them to do well. And, you know, that's a, like a really profound phenomenon, destabilizing, destabilizing the lives of millions of people in this country. And you mentioned how the height of the labor movement in 1945 had 30% of Americans within a union. You write that Republicans retook power in the 1946 congressional elections, then promptly passed the Taft-Hartley Act. This new legal regime allowed state right-to-work laws, excluded new categories of workers from the protections of labor laws, compelled unions to expel communists, and forbade a number of militant tactics. Following quickly on Taft-Hartley's heels was the failure of the labor movement's attempt to organize the South and escape geographical confinement. So this is only one year after the war. What explains that political backlash? Was it because the labor movement had not expanded in the South or was it driven more by anti-communism? Because when we think of anti-communism, it's easy to believe it all started with Senator Joseph McCarthy in 1950 when he gave a speech to the Republican Women's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, and claimed that a piece of paper he was waving around was a list of known communists working within the U.S. State Department. So what caused the backlash against labor in 1946 immediately following World War II? Yeah, well, there's a a lot of kind of complicated answers to this. Uh, Certainly anti-communism is the most important, although it's worth saying um, that there were a number of self-inflicted wounds that the labor movement, you know, in some ways its leadership had, had, had caused over the course of the previous decade. Um, by bringing the labor movement 
into the Democratic Party, kind of as a constituency of the Democratic Party that depended on it and on the legal apparatus it had built for protection. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that was the wrong thing to do necessarily, but that certainly exposed the labor movement to attacks in certain ways uh, for its left-wing elements and brought it into a kind of tacit alliance with, you know, the Dixiecrats who were also in the Democratic Party, right, with the kind of uh, Cold War military industrial complex. So there's a lot of tensions and contradictions that were kind of already built by the New Deal and the kind of alliance between the labor movement and all the other elements of Democrats. Now, once the war ends, um, those tensions kind of come to the surface in some way, particularly as the Cold War is taking off, right? You have this party that is still the party of government. I mean, up until 1953, the Democrats are in control of the government, of the presidency. And uh, yet their coalition, for, you know, for the first couple of years after the war, has in it these big working class organizations that were in many cases built by communists, in some cases led by communists. Um, so, you know, certainly McCarthy and the Republicans in some ways were the kind of more vocal and intense element of the Red Scare, but mainstream liberals participated in it too, because they saw that they had gotten what they needed from the labor movement, which was, you know, a kind of mass rank and file working class following for the Democratic Party in places like Pittsburgh and Detroit and Chicago and New York. And now that they had that, they could try to kind of lop off the left edge of, of that coalition. Um, so Taft-Hartley, among the things that it did, you know, it illegalized many of the kinds of tactics that had built the labor movement in the 1930s. It compelled unions to um, basically expel their, their communists, you know, communists from you know, their leadership. And if they refused to do so, then they kind of stood outside the legal protection of the uh, labor law system. So, you know, most unions just did it. Some refused and then kind of got expelled and got raided down into nothing. Uh, so the United Electrical Workers, for example, were the third largest industrial union in 1945 um, after auto and steel workers. And they refused to expel their communists. And so they had to leave the CIO. And then the CIO set up a rival union to claim the same jurisdiction to, which then raided their shops, absorbed most of their membership, and the United Electrical Workers, which still exists today, has about thirty or forty thousand members. You know, down from the hundreds and hundreds of thousands that it had in 1945. Uh, this environment made it impossible to organize the South uh, because, you know, the surviving labor unions were trying to show that they were not pro-communist, which meant that they were also not pro-integration, which meant that they would not succeed in organizing black workers as well as white workers. And yet they couldn't solve that problem in this environment. Um, so, you know, they encountered all of these kind of tensions and contradictions that had been built into the idea of having a working class presence and representation in and through a and bourgeois liberal political party, all of that came to the surface once the Cold War started. So, one of the main, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Uh, you know, one of the main kind of problems that came out of this was that it made it very difficult to carry forward the program of expanding the welfare state as, you know, even mainstream liberals kind of wanted to do still. So basically once a generation through the whole last hundred years, 
liberals have said, you know, it's time to really fix our crazy healthcare system. Um, in the 1910s, there was an idea that they could do this in the same moment that they were creating like workers' comp laws for the first time. They saw that we should also have some sickness insurance system, but they couldn't really figure it out. And in the 1930s, during the New Deal, um, the committee that wrote the Social Security Act, you know, which covered old age, as we know, and created unemployment insurance and created, uh, you know, what would eventually be disability insurance and things like this and created what we would eventually call welfare. That's to say, age of the poor. Um, you know, in their report, they say, you know, this really should deal with healthcare too, but we, uh, we kind of can't get to it right now. So someone else should do that soon. Um, then in the late forties, Harry Truman says, okay, now we're going to do it. And he proposes a version of what we would now call Medicare for all, you know, that the government is going to take on as a public obligation, health insurance. But it's in the same moment I was just talking about, this kind of onset of the Cold War. Uh, the labor movement is becoming more conservative and is in kind of disarray. And, you know, moreover, socializing medicine kind of sounds like communism to a lot of people. It sounds like socialism. And so, you know, he encounters really severe resistance to this. And in this moment, the industrial unions, which would be the main constituency that could back him up in a fight over this, you know, they say, look, the writing is probably on the wall. We don't think this is going to work out right now. So we're going to keep our support for a single payer health, health insurance system on paper and continue to endorse it. But meanwhile, you know, we all have our contract fights coming up and we're going to go to our employers, General Motors, U.S. Steel, whatever, and demand that they extend collective bargaining to us as part of our contract. And so in the late 40s and early 50s, collective bargaining, which covers a huge percentage of workers at this time, comes to include health insurance. And that is really the way that health coverage through your job becomes a normal thing for working class people. So how do unions getting their members good health benefits, better than non-members, how does that lead to so-called non-profit insurance companies and hospitals getting involved in healthcare? Right, well, so to stick with the Pittsburgh example, uh, let's think about you know what happens when you have this city where, as I said, in 1950, half the workforce is in you know, blue collar work in one, one form or another, uh, when those people all start to get, you know, quite good health insurance through the power of their unions and through the contracts that they negotiate, uh, Blue Cross for the steel workers, which is the most, the most common thing, um, it creates a huge market. The steel industry alone, by the end of the 50s, accounted for, I think, 6% of all nationwide Blue Cross policies. Um, Blue Cross being the biggest insurer in the country at the time and being nonprofit still in this time. So if you're a hospital in a place where, you know, a lot of that 6% is concentrated, as say in Pittsburgh, where you have a ton of steel workers and they all have these really good plans, uh, you have a market in a different kind of way than ever before. Before World War II, hospitals were sort of places where the poor went to die. And that, you know, the typical kind of setup in a hospital was like a, a ward with 30 or 40 beds. You can probably think of an image of this in a movie from, that re is representing, you know, this older time. But, you know, the steelworkers contract says that their insurance will cover a two room, a two bedroom. And so hospitals think, you know, we should really renovate. We should, we should expand. We should renovate. We should set up those rooms that they, there's an insurance policy to pay for it. 
And over the course of the 50s, you start to get expansion of the uh, private but nonprofit hospital system in response to this new mass working class market. The kind of classic story of you know working class mass consumption in the, in the 50s is more true in some way about healthcare than it's true about almost any other commodity. You describe how the New Deal institutionalized a normative life course, a normal working life, as Franklin Roosevelt's Committee on Economic Security put it. Working class people were supposed to form heterosexual nuclear families, have kids, hold down a factory job full time, and accumulate seniority if a man uh, or uh, marry a factory worker if a woman, buy a house and a car, go on strike during contractually specified episodes, go to the hospital when sick, and retire with pension. Collective security depended on these collective behaviors. Now the new public-private welfare state constituted organized industrial workers into actuarial pools synced to this life course sequence, securing them collectively because they advanced through the world and block temporarily, or temporarily, uh, warping the fabric of time around themselves. This pattern underwrote the, their privileged place in the uneven welfare state. Was this guided in any way by white privilege? And is this the great America that many on the right want to make again? Yeah, I mean, certainly the answer is is basically yes. Um, you know, the it's tricky because, you know, I don't want to say, and I think you'll hear people say, that working class organization and, you know, the New Deal in general, like, are fundamentally racist in some way that means that we shouldn't think about what we can learn from them and apply from that experience. And I would never say that. However, uh, on the one hand, you have big blue collar industrial unions like the United Steelworkers. They're racially integrated for the first time in the mainstream labor movement. Uh, you know, prior to the thirties, most mainstream unions were racial, explicitly racially segregated. Um, and in the 30s and 40s, part of the way that those unions win for the first time is they embrace and try to organize black workers. That allows them to uh, unite different levels of the workforce, right? The kind of typically more uh, elite, skilled workers who are typically white and the more unskilled and kind of replaceable workers who are more often African-American. Uh, they they're able to bring them together in a single organization. However, they never break that basic pattern internally. Um, so steel mills are internally racially segregated in significant informal ways. Uh, anyone who's worked in a steel mill can tell you, you know, the black workers were in the worst jobs, the hottest jobs, most dangerous and toxic jobs um, in Coke ovens and blast furnaces. And they were also typically the last hired and the first fired you know, in these sort of cyclical layoff cycles that happened every, every few years in a recession. Um, seniority in a steel mill was uh, organized not at the plant level, but at the department level. So if you're a black worker working in the Coke oven, which is the worst part of the steel mill to work in, um, as you gain more seniority, you gain more seniority that only applies in the Coke oven department. So you can't move out of the Coke oven and into a place that is not gonna kill you at 50. Uh, you can only just get a better job within this toxic environment. Um, 
what this is a kind of example of is the overall phenomenon that while these industries and these jobs were racially integrated in important ways, and while they did create a stratum of black workers who had some access to their benefits and their security, they nonetheless uh, gave much more access and much more security overall to white workers. And, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the kind of image, the kind of cultural image that working class victories create um, when people think about what is work, who does it, what kind of, you know, things do they deserve for doing it? The image at the heart of that was a white person, right? I mean, when people talk about the industrialization, they seem to imagine in, you know, Trump and the Rust Belt and whatever, right? They seem to imagine white people as though black workers were not in fact the first victims of deindustrialization, but they were. Uh, you know, the waves of job, the earliest waves of job loss hit black workers by far the hardest. And it was only at the kind of end of the process, process of deindustrialization that it caught up to white workers. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's complex and sort of a delicate thing to figure out because you can't speak in absolute, absolutes about it. There is black home ownership that does develop in Pittsburgh somewhat, but much less in, for white people and so on. But overall, uh, the ability to kind of achieve this normative life course that you were just talking about, while in some ways it doesn't really exist for anyone fully, it, white people are able to get closer to it. And that does lead to this kind of weird effect in the kind of cultural afterlife of how we think of industrial work. I was watching a show about the history of the sitcom, and you mentioned the Honeymooners earlier and how so many of the roles of the fathers within those sitcoms, within those nuclear families, were the primary breadwinner. They were the only person within the house who was making any money. To what extent do you think the media reinforced the ideas that the government was trying to impose in a bipartisan way on the working class? Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just the media. It's, uh, I mean, the single breadwinner household was encoded in law in various ways. Uh, I mean, the ways that, you know, in kind of obscure ways, the ways that taxation and social security worked, um, you know, the fact that Benefits are doled out. The best kind of benefits are doled out through collectively bargained, you know, industrial jobs, which basically only hire men. Uh, you know, that makes it kind of in some way rational for a couple, you know, people to organize themselves into these couples where one gets one of those jobs and one stays home and, you know, is a homemaker or whatever. Um, the structures that kind of enforce this. Uh, it's true, it exists at the level of the media and people see it represented in, you know, on TV and in the movies and in the culture that they consume as the normal way of living. But it's also actually quite hard to live in another way. I mean, it's like there are, if they try to live in another way, they will encounter difficulties. And you also write that the increasingly comprehensive health care benefits of the post-war period entitled their bearers to the insecure labor of care workers. Workers' benefits, a transaction dominated in the economy of the becalmed insider zone, then were spent to import services from the insecure outsider zone, like an unequal international trade relationship in which one currency is far stronger than the other. So was care work then devalued for the privileged few, the union workers who did have those benefits? Yeah, I mean, so 
if you do have those benefits, well, I, I sort of what I'm saying there is that um, economic security is routed in, for the through the, those kind of secure that secure minority of the working class, the kind of bread you know industrially employed secure breadwinners is routed to everyone else through them, and it's decisions that they make about who they're going to marry and you know the kind of family they're going to establish. And then, you know, what other kinds of services are going to consume that become the sort of channels by which that security trickles out into the rest of the working class population. So, I mean, what is health insurance, right? If we stop and think about what is health insurance, especially in the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, it's a coupon for labor. Basically, the thing that you are buying with your health insurance is the attention of another person. What kind of attention? Well, you know, you might think of, again, surgery or something like this, but really most of what health insurance is going to consume, most of what you're buying with that coupon, especially in those years, and even to a significant extent today, is a kind of low level, lower level in terms of intensity attention from someone who's kind of making sure that your fever is not up, that your infection is not getting worse, who turn, might, you know, might need to be turned in bed, you might need to be fed, your sheets need to be changed, kind of routine caring labor and something that women do in our labor market i mean that's how it's how it works it's been assigned to women forever uh and we can talk more about why that is but um and poor women typically um so it's this kind of question of cultural valuation right is this seen as real work and in many ways it's not uh as we've been talking about all along it's not protected by labor law in the same kinds of ways um, and then there's this kind of economic dimension that the kind of secure in, insiders, like steelworkers, right? They they are they are paid partly in these coupons, and how much the coupon is for—that's to say, what's in the health insurance policy—is ultimately going to determine the wages of the nurse who turns that person over in bed, uh, because there is no other source of income that pays for that hospital or that nursing home besides those coupons. And there's no machinery to make it more efficient. You write that over the post-war decades, employment in manufacturing underwent a long secular decline across the industrial United States and the entire global North. Working class people responded to the secular crisis of manufacturing employment by making demands on state institutions directly in political forms and in indirectly through mass behavior as social service consumers. And across the entire deindustrializing world, a wave of welfare state expansion followed in the immediate aftermath as governments responded to these demands and sought to manage the appearance of new forms of poverty amid the post-war plenty. In the United States, we have not understood this political phenomenon as a single event, but rather know it as a sequence of events, the war on poverty, the great society, the urban uprisings, the welfare rights and black move, power movements, the young lords here in Chicago, labor's rank and file rebellion, the fiscal crisis of the state and stagflation. So were all of these events a single event? And if so, how do we understand all of these events differently when we see them as one process instead of all these siloed processes? Yeah. So, um, I mean, they all have their own, you know, important dimensions, but at the core of all of them is deindustrialization, right? Because it, industrial employment is central to the social contract, the post-war social contract. 
It's how the whole thing is built. It's culturally central, you know, Nixon in Moscow, and it's economically central. It's how, you know, how you get effective demand in the economy and it's how people get security. It's the whole thing is built around it. And so as investment and employment are withdrawn gradually for a long time, they're gradually withdrawn over the course of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then quite rapidly at the end of the 70s and into the 80s, um, it produces a range of related responses, right? People don't all respond in one way. There's not an obvious solution. People try a million different things um, in response to this, and they may not experience it as, ah, I lost my job down to the plant, right? They may experience it as, God, I was born into this community where there's no jobs, right? There's different versions of ways that you can kind of encounter this phenomenon. Um, but overall, what happens is a gradual transfer of responsibility for the survival of the population onto the state because it's what's there. Now, that's not something that the state particularly, you know, most people who control the state, let's say policymakers, are particularly happy about. Uh, mainly, they kind of try to resist it, but they're not able particularly to just condemn the population to, you know, mass death or something. It's not a fascist society. We can just liquidate the excess. Um, and so what a, that's what a lot of these movements and struggles that we were just talking about are negotiating and fighting over is a gradual transfer of responsibility for the survival of the population onto the state. And the Young Lords and the Panthers and the welfare rights movement are some of the most sophisticated and clearest versions of this, where those are some groups that are really articulating pretty directly what's happening and why it means that, you know, uh, society has to take responsibility for people's survival much more. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the fiscal crisis of the state. I mean, you know, the classic example of this is the New York, the New York City fiscal crisis in the mid 70s. Um, New York was devastated by deindustrialization. People now forget that it was an industrial city, but it was. Um, and so, you know, its welfare roles really swelled just automatically because people didn't have work. And then that meant that they were, you know, claiming different kinds of public benefits. And so the tax base is down, the welfare rolls are up, the city goes into fiscal crisis. And then there's a question of how are you going to deal with this problem? And that becomes a political struggle. Um, healthcare is really unique in this environment because it's this weird system that has been constructed through public policy, both private, uh, public regulation of private sector labor markets, that's to say collective bargaining, where the government says employers have to bargain, they have to bargain over healthcare, and in some ways, there are regulations encouraging them to con make concessions on healthcare. Also, direct public money in the form of Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so it's the system is constructed by the public, but it's administered privately by hospitals and insurance companies. And in, in many ways, there are opportunities for making some profit in doing it. And so that system is positioned, the healthcare system is positioned at this public-private nexus that allows it to really profit uh, and grow and grow and grow off of and out of this kind of gradual process of transfer of responsibility that I'm talking about. You mentioned women entering the workplace earlier, and you write that when women sought waged employment in the 1970s and 80s, they entered a sector already long since cordoned off by the institutionalized racial and gendered logics of the post-war welfare state. 
So more people were leaving manufacturing, more of those workers were in need of more health care, a demand for care workers emerged right when pressure was being put on women to work due to the inability of single family incomes to make ends meet in the deindustrialized economy. Is this all happenstance and coincidence or was this the plan all along? Well, it certainly wasn't the plan in that nobody, you know, certainly there was no one sitting in an office mapping it out. And to a significant to a significant extent, no one even understood exactly what was happening, even as it was happening. But I wouldn't say it's a coincidence either. Um, rather, I would try, I would give a kind of structural explanation, which is that um, you know we've been talking through this whole conversation about all of the contradictions that flow from the idea that your survival depends upon your employment and. Over time, what's happened over the long history of capitalism, going back centuries, not just decades, is that we've become increasingly interdependent, right? This is an effect of capitalist division of labor. Like when everyone was a peasant family, everyone kind of did the same thing. Each peasant family was kind of semi-self-sufficient. Um, and there wasn't that much interdependency across the, across the society. But as the division of labor grows and becomes more specialized and more refined, we become increasingly interdependent, right? Because you need what I do for your survival and I need what you do for my survival and more and more over time. That principle of interdependency is a kind of effect of how capitalist societies are organized, but it creates a kind of weird tension when you have these particular kind of breadwinner groups that are elevated as the kind of most important kind of employees. Because in fact, the system of interdependency is much broader than that, right? As we've been talking about, they actually depend on nurses and their wives and all kinds of things. Um, so that creates this kind of paradox. And what's happening over, over this kind of period of time, is, you know, the, over the 70s and 80s, as women are entering the workforce, is more and more of the kind of social interdependency that I'm describing is actually getting institutionalized in the form of the healthcare system. So the healthcare system, you know, along with public education and some similar kind of social services, it sort of makes, it represents our dependence on each other. It sort of makes us a society, right? It's how we keep each other and keep ourselves alive. It's how we take care of our young and our old and our sick uh, and disabled people among us. Uh, and the transfer of labor out of the household, that is to say women's uh, unwaged care work in, in the household, out into nursing homes and hospitals and home health care represents increasing social responsibility for those kind of basic tasks of survival that make us a society. Now, that's not to say that it's happening in a great and rational and humane way. It's happening kind of against the will in some way of the people who want to make a profit off of healthcare, but I don't think that they're able to totally resist it. There's some deep structural forces at work here. Can, if there was, could care worker labor organizing avoid the mistakes made by industrial labor unions that collectively bargained exclusively instead of having as a goal, a more democratic workplace and less work? Can a more caring workforce lead to a more caring labor organizing? 
Um, I mean, I think to succeed, it would have to. Uh, I mean, there's a very high bar to have real transformative working class victories and power in the care industry for all the reasons we've been talking about, the issues of productivity and efficiency and profit, um, the kind of legacies of racial and gendered structures that organize that labor market. So there's a very high bar to really succeed. And I think to really build working class power in the care industries, you need groups of care workers, not just advocating on their own behalf, although that's important, but representing um, the larger principle of social interdependency that I was just talking about. And we've seen examples of this, especially in Chicago, right? The Chicago Teachers Union is like the leader in figuring out how to try to do this, saying, you know, our working conditions, our students' learning conditions, we're on strike, not just you know, because we want to get paid more, although we do, and that's valid, but also because, you know, we want smaller classes and smaller classes are easier for, to teach, for us to teach in, but they're also better for student learning and on and on like that. Um, that principle is the idea that, you know, we are socially interdependent. These kinds of institutions like healthcare and education represent that interdependence. And when workers in those institutions advocate for themselves, they are advocating for a broader population that depends on them as well. Um, now that's very difficult to do. And it's especially difficult in healthcare given how privatized the system is, uh, how fragmented it is, how irrational it is. And all of those things create all of these kinds of forms of inertia and resistance to change that are hard to overcome politically. However, uh, I also think that those problems are what make healthcare such a perennial political issue and, and therefore a kind of potential site of political possibility because it's so hard to solve. When we do solve it, it will really change quite a lot. One last question for you, Gabriel. We've been speaking with historian Gabriel Winant, author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. This is a fascinating book. If you want to know why we don't have single-payer healthcare, why we don't have the worker solidarity here in the United States that you might find elsewhere, you will find out why that is the case by reading Gabriel's book. Again, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. One last question for you, Gabriel, and I promise, as we do with each and every one of our guests, the final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, as the fragmentary healthcare system presented one of the only sites with the institutional capacity to expand and respond to such social problems at scale because it linked public resources with private profits, health policy processed economic dislocation into an epidemiology. In many cases, this dynamic brought stigma onto subject populations, but sometimes also care to comfort and often all these at once. So in the United States, do we only address social problems if we can figure out how profit can be made by doing so? And if that is the case, what happens to social programs in general if they're not pursued without the incentive of profit? Yeah, I mean, the answer is basically yes. This is the only way we address social problems in this country is uh, by finding a way to mobilize private, pri the private, the profit interests of the private sector or some element of it. Um, and, you know, this is even true in situations where it's not obviously the case. So the, I like to say that healthcare is one of two areas of domestic social policy where the fiscal size of the government has expanded really dramatically over the last generation or two. 
even though we think of the last generation or two as being the era of small government, right? Um, but healthcare is an area where the government has gotten much, much bigger, just measured in dollars. The other in domestic social policy is the prison system. Uh, right? These are the two, something about these two kinds of policy, punishment and healthcare, has made, made them the two things that can grow even in the era of attacks on big government. Now, in healthcare, as we've been talking about, uh, that's for a lot of different reasons, but there is a really key one is that there is opportunity for profit in it. That's much less true in prisons, although not at all, right? We know there's some private for-profit prisons, but they're pretty small in the grand scheme. Um, but nonetheless, what do prisons do? They absorb uh, labor market surplus, right? People who are unemployed, if you, if you lose your job, and you're not able to survive on the welfare state because the welfare state's getting cut back, uh, you are much likelier to wind up in the prison system in one way or another. And that in turn reduces your ability to have leverage on a potential employer, right? So if, unemplo if unemployment is made more unattractive because it's likelier that you're gonna wind up getting put in a cage as an unemployed person, it redounds to the benefit of private employers, because private employers know that workers are more desperate and will take whatever conditions they can offer. So uh, even the kind of most, most kind of public sector, uh, least privatized, least for profit enterprise in this country, basically, which is the prison system is virtually entirely public. Again, setting aside these kind of relatively small exceptions, uh, even that is organized in a way that's to benefit the you know private sector for-profit employer it's a really you know ultimately perverse thing about our society it's built deep into the structure of our institutions and i think you know it's going to be the major subject of struggle in, in our generation as the private sector has proven completely unable and the profit incentive is proven the profit system has proven completely unable to solve our social problems i mean most of all climate change it's a really clear case right that we just can't do it that way because we need to kill industries as well as you know grow some renewable industries. We need to shut others down and they will never do that themselves. So to what degree is the public recognizing that, but the leadership, whether it's in the business world or within politics or within the media, does not recognize that? Oh, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the leadership doesn't recognize it at all. And you know, uh, in virtually any, any area of life, um, and much of the public doesn't either, and that's not their fault. It's that the fact that you like to survive, you need a job, and you know your job is going to come most likely from a private sector employer, and your private sector employer is going to only hire you if it's profitable to do so, creates a structure by which people come to think that it's really important that their employers make profits, right? And that's because right. it is actually, and you know that's an at the individual level that's that makes sense right like you need your employer to do well enough to be able to keep you employed uh and so you know that means that if you are working in let's say a carbon intensive industry it makes sense why you might be skeptical of you know things that seem to threaten the profits of your employer at the individual level there's a perfectly good logic to that uh but when you take a step back you can see how the profit system as a whole uh, you know, is totally irrational and like not amenable to 
kind of rational democratic decision making about how we should organize our society. On that happy note, Gabriel, it was very, very enjoyable having you as a guest on the show. This is a really, this is a fantastic book, and I think it answers so many questions. If people liked our conversation with Terrence Ray about the opioid crisis in eastern Kentucky on Thursday, and he mentioned your book, Gabriel, uh, please check out Gabriel's book. Again, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. I cannot thank you enough for being on today's show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is great. Live from Lake Capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. If you enjoyed our conversation with Gabriel Wynant, please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can find all of our merchandise or by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday, with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online at patreon.com slash thisishell. Jess, please remind us what this week's question from hell is and tell us how our listeners are answering so far. This week's question from hell is, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Braden S. says, the capitalist who sold us the wall. Oh, nice. <laughs> Garrett S., me and every other millennial, because it's better to die a hero than to live long enough to see yourself become the villain. There's a great bit in Gabriel's book about millennials and the generational divide, which is absolutely fantastic in another book. Another reason to get his book, The Next Shift. Yeah, I think I'm a young millennial, I guess, right at the end. Sure. Um, Grimsky K, the firing squad. Um, (laughs) I like that. uh, Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Dan K, ammunition salesman. (laughs) Um, Adam A, as always, the last against the wall. We're always the best at straddling the fence. And last, Jack W, the barber who shaves all those and those only who do not shave themselves. (laughs) Sheesh. Uh... I know I've probably told this story before, but it just reminds me of my dad's bookie, who was a very, very nice guy. He told me, he was like, I love dogs. Charlie, I love dogs. I absolutely love them. You know what I hate? People who abuse dogs. I just want to line them up against that wall and shoot them all in the head. Pretty humane guy. At least he was an animal lover, right? We will have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from Mel is, who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? Who will be last up against the wall when the revolution comes? The person with our favorite answer wins whatever piece of merchandise. This is how merchandise they want. You can tweet your answer. You can send us our answer via fa- your answer via Facebook. You can email us to us. Whatever. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in rotten history on July 12th, 1898. 123 years ago today, Monday, an African-American man. Oops, this is going to go bad. When it starts off an African-American man, you know if it's rotten history, this will not end well. An African-American man named John Henry James, who worked as an ice cream vendor in Charlottesville, Virginia, nice job location, was being taken back to that town by train after having been arrested there the day before. James was accused of sexually assaulting a white woman, and since the police had feared that a lynching might result, they had quickly taken him into the nearby town of Staunton, about 40 miles away, to spend the night in custody there. Keep in mind, that's the Charlottesville, where this past weekend they finally took down the Robert E. Lee statue that was at the heart of the violent and deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally. But back in 1898, the police were bringing John Henry James back to Charlottesville, and as the train reached a station in a rural area called Woods Crossing, about four miles outside of town, it was stopped by some 150 angry white people from Charlottesville who had crowded onto the tracks. 
Is it just me, but doesn't Woods Crossing, Virginia sound like the kind of town where they burn lots of crosses? The mob was outraged that James had been taken away for the night, and several men among them forced their way onto the train. They overpowered the police officers, got their hands on James, and dragged him kicking and screaming to a tree outside the train station. There, as James loudly protested his innocence, they put a noose around his neck and hanged him. As he was dying, the men pulled their guns and shot him several dozen times. They left his body hanging there all day and... Area residents came by to cut off bits of his flesh, hair, and clothing as souvenirs, as was the common practice at lynching in those days, because people in the United States were freaking evil. Though no actual evidence against John Henry James is recorded, a grand jury delivered an indictment after he was dead, and although the men who lynched him did so in the presence of police, none were arrested or charged with any crime. That's weird. The police siding with reactionary far-right wingers who lynched an African-American man? And again, I want to thank Ronaldo Magaldi for reminding us that these kinds of post-Civil War events were not an anomaly or an aberration, but far too often they were the norm and the rule, which is the history that white conservative right-wing Republicans want to censor from your education. That's rotten history, as well as our current state of history. And this is Hell. Just who is on tomorrow's show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow we'll be talking to writer Brad Evans on his new book, Ecce Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. So uh, have you taken Latin classes? No, I don't know any Latin. I'm trying to figure out if that's the right way to pronounce it. I'm, I'm leaning on with you on that one. I think so. I looked it up. <laughs> really? Well, good for you. One of us has done that. Uh, Brad was on our show back in 2019 to talk about his then-just-published book, Atrocity Exhibition. Great Joy Division song. Atrocity Exhibition, Life in the Age of Total Violence. And what about Wednesday show? We don't know anything about Wednesday or Thursday, correct? No, we do not. But we do know. And Thursday, of course, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Jess Lipka. Thanks to our guest, Brad Evans. Thanks to Jess. Thanks to Alex Jerry for booking today's show. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is Oily Fish. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>